Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and unit testing my unit tests. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? I'm doing pretty good. A little, little busy? A, a little exciting? Yeah, yeah big week. <laughs> what you got going on? So it's been a couple of weeks since we were on. We took last week off because of some reasons. But we're back this week and... I finally got version one of retrospective timelines wrapped up and submitted and published and shipped yesterday. Fantastic. Congratulations, sir. Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a different feeling. I think we talked about this offline, but it's I'm used to doing all these consulting projects where done almost entirely means done like sometimes there's a maintenance agreement but for the most part like reaching the done stage of the project is like look for the next project look for the next customer you know see you in two years type of situation and this is like this is nothing like that this is like <laughs> barely the you know i've barely scratched the surface of what i want to do with this app so it's a really different feeling and a different kind of process to like submit it and be not done not even started yeah something like that so yeah we can kind of talk about the timeline of how things went but uh i guess short story is i had given myself an arbitrary deadline of shipping by november 20th a couple of maybe six six or eight weeks ago and i saw i was gonna miss that towards the you know, about halfway through November. So I decided to make it December 1st, which was the same day that I shipped uh, Random Arrow in, in 2016. So I kind of drew a line in the sand and kind of worked backwards from there. And my goal was to actually public or to submit it in the App Store by last Sunday. And Sunday came and there was just too much to do and Monday came and there was still too much to do. So I finally got it submitted by Tuesday. So everything everything took longer than it should. <laughs> like every single thing. Everything always does. Yeah. And uh, so Dave helped me with the copy for the store. And I did a bunch of screenshots and sample data. And people on Twitter were helping me with that stuff and giving me feedback. So all that is much appreciated. But I finally got it submitted on Tuesday. It was approved on, you know, Wednesday, maybe, you know, 14, 15 hours later. Wasn't very long. And then I thought about, so I initially had it set up to just go straight into pre-order mode with December 1st being the launch day. And I, for some reason, like the app, the App Store Connect page was showing some weird um statuses and the app store page would never show up they just would say not available in this region and uh so i just i'm not sure what was happening I, i've gathered there's some other people on twitter having similar issues last week so i just took it out of pre-order and published it on you know maybe wednesday afternoon or wednesday evening and it kind of sat there quietly until yesterday, yesterday when I uh, finally got the website, or at least not necessarily done, but 
enough of a website together to have something on the other end of the links that I provided with the app. <laughs> that was kind of important. I wonder if Apple was doing a mini version of the big break they take around Christmas time when you can't publish anything or change much. No, I don't think so. Like it went through when I published it. It was just yeah. people were having issues with things that should take five minutes were taking four or five hours. Ah, so all the people were off. Yeah. It's actually like that's probably an automated system. But yeah. Anyway, proceed. Yeah, I know they're. I know people were off because I got a response back to one of my emails that the entire support staff was closed for seven days or something. I think that's convenient. So, um, you know, I got the website up and running yesterday morning and just kind of shared a couple things on Twitter and had some people retweet that stuff. And beyond that, that's been kind of it. It's not really a splashy launch. And I didn't really think I would be capable of making a big splash. So I didn't even try. So there is no, there's no press kit yet. There's no, I don't know. There's not much of anything. There's an app <laughs> and it works. And there's a couple of minor bugs that I need to fix. The, the interesting thing to me is how many things I had to pull out kind of working up to that deadline. So we talked a couple weeks ago about my custom text field and custom text views because the Swift UI stuff is a little bit too basic. And that stuff worked kind of, but I started noticing some issues with it and trying to fix those issues. I found even more issues and I was spending too much time on it and decided to just pull those out of the project for now. And it had two consequences. One is the both timeline and event basically just have a name field. So you give a timeline a name and you give an event a name. Timelines, most people aren't going to give them very long names. There's no actual limit. Like you can add as much text as you want, but there's a reasonable limit because the field doesn't scroll. You can't add carriage returns to it. Um, so you can't necessarily type in a whole paragraph and expect to be able to work with it reasonably. And the field does place the cursor all the way at the end of the text when you tap into it, but there's no way to like scroll back over to the other side. So if the text isn't visible. So that's kind of one of the limitations of that field. The other one is there's no done button on the keyboard. So you can dismiss the keyboard by hitting the return key, but I can't get the return key to say done with a nice blue button that we're used to. So that was kind of throwing some people off. And then the other negative effect of this was I had to take the notes feature out entirely. So I just disabled all of the code in the UI that supports notes because the text view had just as many issues as the text field. So hopefully I can get these things figured out this week. Yeah, it's kind um, of a kill your darlings moment. It was like you yeah. put a lot of time into it, a lot of effort got 82 percent of the way there well I, I wouldn't say i put a lot of effort in. i put a bunch of time into it but yeah. this is one of those situations where i have no idea what this stuff does i'm i'm writing a swift ui wrapper for ui kit element that i know nothing about right and i'm using these apis from ui kit in a way that they're not intended to be made so it's like 
I can like what I cobbled together was from five or six different Stack Overflow posts of people trying similar things, and it looked like it worked, but there were issues with cursor placement and like you know adding an emoji in. Some of the emojis count as two spaces, but the code that does the cursor placement would then be off by one. So I don't know. It, it's a good opportunity to express how much I take for granted doing FileMaker work where I just have a text field that works where in in iOS, if you want a text field that you can, you know, tap into, put the cursor wherever you want, have the cursor move when you type, um, particularly if you're like in the middle of a paragraph and you want the paragraph to move forward and you're inserting text into it, that's not anything that you get. You have to do all of that yourself which is insane as far as I'm concerned. And SwiftUI handles this stuff better except for the limitations of that implementation and for the fact there is no text view. So I don't have an option for large, long form text and the short form text has too many issues with it. I mean, it also has, I can't get uh, speech to text to work in SwiftUI text fields at all. Even I, I tried making just a standalone app and I need to send that to Apple in the feedback ticket, but it just crashes every time you try to use speech to text. It also doesn't support like double tapping the space bar to add a period, things like that. Like all these things that we're used to just don't work in this new text field. And I'm sure all this stuff will be fixed in, you know, f 10 months, <laughs> whenever iOS 14 ships next year, but it's going to be a while. So I need to come up with a good good solution in the meantime. So the other stuff I had to uh, cut from the project was, and I think we already talked about this, was the, uh, the issues I was having on the iPad with split screen where resizing the window was duplicating the entire UI hierarchy. And I, I had used one of my TSI things with Apple and they had absolutely nothing useful to say other than file a bug, which is getting pretty frustrating. <laughs> Do you get your TSI back then? I don't know. These people are, the, the person that's been assigned to me both times is pretty rude and pretty condescending. So uh, I kind of just, I kind of just archived it and gone on with my day. But yeah, I, I don't have a solution for that. So the app is limited to full screen on iPad for now. Um, which kind of sucks because I like being able to use split screen and slide over. And I would like to have that with my app. And then the the last thing that was really cut, this wasn't necessarily a feature, but more of just how I thought about onboarding my initial idea was to add a bunch of sample data add you know two or three different timelines with a you know some pre-selected colors and icons and some kind of generic timeline names and then add just enough events to demonstrate the basic features of the app but then allow the users to delete that stuff and i had some basic sample data ready to go you can see that in the screenshots in the app store and on the website. So I still have that sample data, but it's not 
going to be populated when you buy the app because I was running into issues with CloudKit where it's a real chicken chicken and egg situation where the first time the app loads, so I, I guess imagine a scenario where you already have the app on your iPhone and you're downloading the app for the first time on your iPad and you've already got a bunch of data that you put in on the phone, so it's synced to CloudKit. Now you run the app for the first time on the iPad and immediately the UI renders, it queries core data. There's nothing there because it's querying, the way that the core data cloud integration works is core data is looking in its local version of the store to build the UI. And then at the same time, firing off all of the, the, the commands it needs to, to start the sync process. But it doesn't find anything at first but it also doesn't return like i can't i can't write a query that says definitely there's nothing there so I, right I'm, I'm phrasing this badly there was nothing i could do to say this ipad has never been synced before but i know for a fact that there is data um so what i wanted to do was you know if this if this account has no data then create the sample data else don't create the sample data. Uh, and no matter what I did, I ended up with sample data every single time, which would end up with a bunch of duplicates if, you, if the user hadn't deleted it. And somebody suggested just trying to dedupe it. I'm like, I just don't want to, I don't want to delete, I don't want any feature in my app that deletes user data when the user is not doing it themselves. I didn't you, right. I just didn't want to tread it into that territory at all because the the nature of the data that I'm promoting this app to be is very personal. I don't want you to lose mm -hmm. this data. Like that would be a pretty big failing on my part. And even if you're 99% sure that that's your sample data, there's mm -hmm. still that 1% chance that somebody wanted to hang on to it or something. Yeah. Like, oh, I like your sample data. I'm just going to start from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the idea of trying to dedupe it or delete it, just I, I've seen too many things go wrong for that. So I kind of scratched, uh, scrapped the uh, sample data idea and thought, I'll make a tutorial. I'll make a little modal that pops open at, you know, the first time you install the app. It doesn't have to check iCloud because it can just show the first time you install it and you can dismiss it if you don't want to go through it. And mm -hmm. that was... A good idea, and I will probably still do that, but I immediately started spending way too much time on it. <laughs> and it's like, this is gonna be like basically a full version of the app in a modal view with fake data, and, but with the real views. I'm like, yeah, it, it got out of hand really quickly. So I pulled that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I only spent two hours on it, but I, I got as far as I did. I'm like, this is, I need to stop now or this is going to be another version of the app running in a modal window. So <laughs> Don't do that, Joe. Exactly. So my sample data was reduced down to the tutorial. My tutorial, when I, you know, just kind of threw my hands up, like I got to ship something. So now on the main list, when, when the uploads, you got the view that has the, the four reports at the top and your list of timelines. If there are zero items in the timeline, a row shows 
a, a string of text that says, tap the add button to create your first timeline. And that's it. So from dozens of sample data records to an interactive tutorial down to a single text <laughs> string. It was like, this will have to do. In fact, that was my commit message. This will have to do. <laughs> I apologize if I just blew somebody's eardrums out, but that was funny. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you know, that was kind of the theme of a lot of what I did the last two weeks of like really cutting stuff down to the minimum and you know, just doing what I can to get this thing ready. So the app store is pretty minimal. There's only four screenshots. There's no video yet. There's no press kit on the website. I wrote a pretty cursory privacy policy, just all that kind of stuff. So there's a ton of work I still need to do to make this thing more consumable, more uh, marketable. Um, and what I'm hoping to do over the next couple of weeks is start replacing some of these things I had to cut. So being able to, hopefully I can get some help with the custom text field and text view and integrate those into the app. No one will really even notice the text field. Like it'll just kind of swap out in place and be better all of a sudden. But the text view will be a new feature. So I can say, hey, the, you know, adding notes is a new feature. So I'm hoping to, I need to make a roadmap um, sometime this week or next, but what I want to do is release several new small features under version one, just some point updates and bug fixes, and then start planning out version two with some of the more uh, visually intensive reporting stuff that we talked about. So, you know, combining multiple timelines and being able to view them, you know, kind of in comparison or overlapping one another. Um, I have some of that now in the all data section, but that's really just a, a list of stuff sorted. So I want to do some more chart type things. And I also thought about, you know, a quick feature for version one could be, I've got my sharing feature where you can just tap on an event and go to a sharing screen and you can share it as an image and or as text and the image has the the, you know, the kind of app tint color purple that I'm using for the branding, or you can toggle it into a white background with purple text. So it's got, you know, a purple background with white text, or you can toggle it to the opposite. So I want to redo this, not redo it, but add a bunch of features to it to allow custom colors, maybe add some nice textures in the background, um, let the user kind of customize it a little bit before they share it. And then I also thought about a version of this that could share an entire timeline. So loop through all of the events for a timeline in the same order that you see them in the list view, but just create a really long image that people can share. So that could be kind of cool. And then also maybe exporting individual timelines. Right now the, the app has a, you know, kind of a, a full app wide export to get all of your data out, mm -hmm. but being able to export a single timeline as you know, text or CSV, or maybe even formatted as a markdown table or something like that could be kind of cool. So lots of, you know, kind of small-ish features that could each justify an update, 
but not necessarily a whole, you know big splashy version. So yeah, as far as as far as what I actually shipped, it was basically you know kind of came down to timelines, events, reports, which I don't ever call reports, but the on this day favorites ongoing and and all dates, uh, sharing events, the today widget, and exporting data. And that's pretty much what's there. It seems like there should be more because I spent so much of my life on this. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, you spent, I mean, there were the things that weren't working that you had to spend a lot of time on, but you also spent a lot of time on not just banging out a feature, but ending up with a good one. Yeah. A good implementation of a particular thing. And it's like just adding a feature to add a feature is not, is not what you end up doing. Mm -hmm. You want those features to be good. And that's worthwhile and time consuming. Really is. Like one of my friends a couple weeks ago was telling me, don't you think it's time to, you know, ship the minimum viable product? And I was thinking about that afterwards. I'm like, I'm not capable of making a minimum viable product. Like that type of thinking where just get the bare minimum out the door. I'm not capable of doing that. Like yeah. if I was, I wouldn't be a very good consultant. That's one of the reasons why people pay me is because I think of all the edge cases and then I code around all the edge cases. And that's maybe I need to modify that type of thinking and planning with this type of work, but it does not come easy to me to say, to to recognize that something isn't there and then not add it. That's not something that I'm, good at doing like i see something missing and i'm not gonna do it like i'm gonna spend the next three days on that what are you talking about yeah Uh, i think that there's different philosophies for this and one of the tricks there's i think you did do that in certain cases that's where the custom text view went You put the work in, you built it, you added it, and it was not up to standard. And rather Mm. than release it, not up to standard, you removed that feature until you could do it well. Yeah. And so I I think you did hit at least your version of a minimum viable product. Hmm. This, This is your minimum viable product. Now, maybe better than other people's minimum viable product, but it's your minimum viable product. Yeah. Like you would have, uh, you know, if you had all the time in the world, you would have waited, I, I would assume, until you had all the visual charts ready to go. Yeah. Like if that was a thing that you could just work on this for another year, I think you would have put off release. Yeah, I would have. So it's just where exactly your definition of minimum is. And your definition of minimum is just a little further along than some other people's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I made a timeline this morning for retrospective timelines. (laughs) Is that meta or recursive? Yes. (laughs) Meta cursive. There you go. So I think the most important dates in this are kind of when I started working in Swift UI or decided to move the app 
to Swift UI full time. So that was July 27th. So I've been working on this for the better part of the summer, but most of June was kind of lost to tinkering with Swift UI and new stuff in Xcode. And most of July was lost to a website project that I was doing. And then I had another website project pop up in the end of August and September. So yeah, it's been a lot of, it seems like you know, when I think about it, it's like I've been working full-time on this for six months, but it's really, I've been working full-time on this for about four weeks. And even that full-time is really only about 20 hours a week because I've still got all this other stuff I've been doing. So there's, you know, the podcast, there's the consulting stuff, there's the websites I've been building. So yeah, it's really, I don't, I didn't, I haven't tracked time recently, but I'm guessing I probably only spent on average 15 hours a week on the app over the last couple of months. I'm, I'm going to track time in my, in one of my future ideas, but uh, that's another discussion. Oh no. <laughs> oh, oh no, Joe. <laughs> it's just another, well, I, it's a, it's a short idea. If anybody wants to take this idea and make it before I can, please do, because I'd rather use it. But I, I want a time tracking app that doesn't track clock time. I This is exactly the wrong type of time tracking for most people, which is why I'm not excited about making this a product necessarily, unless other people really do think like this. But I don't want to clock in and out. And I don't want to say... I worked on this task from this time to that time. I want to say I worked on this category of work for three hours and I worked on this for half an hour. Like anything less than, you know, I guess the increments could vary, but you know, being able to just pick out blocks of time. And I built this in FileMaker a couple of years ago. Um, this was actually the app I was trying to do in 2016 before I ran into the fact that CloudKit was way over my head and ended up giving up. But it's basically a way to create a list of things. So call them categories or lists or whatever you want. Um, and then tap on one to add a related record to it, a time entry record for it. Populate the day's date with the current date and then have a couple of buttons that have intervals of time. Just tap on one to add that to the total for the time entry. So you'd say you have a four hour button and a one hour button, a half hour button and a 15 minute button. Mm -hmm. And then maybe even make those user customizable so they can set their own intervals. And then just be able to quickly add up some time, maybe a toggle button to toggle the buttons into negative mode in case you need to reduce some. And that's it. That's that's the type of, type of time tracking I want. You can build this in FileMaker in an hour. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've still got a version somewhere in my documents archive, but uh, it's the kind of thing that I think would be really cool because I still want the time tracking data. I just don't want to punch in and out. I'd rather just at the end of the day, ballpark what I worked on and that's good enough for me. So this is not for billing. I don't bill by the hour. It's not that that level of granularity. It's just something I want to do. But if anybody knows something like that, then let me know. But I have not found it. 
And if, if somebody says, hey, there's an app like that, and I open it, and there's a time picker, I'm going to send you mean emojis. <laughs> now I kind of want to go searching through the app store. <laughs> See how many mean emojis I can collect from Joe. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's uh, retrospective timelines. That's my update. There's a lot to do on it, but uh, feeling pretty good about it so far. What's going on with you? Uh, well, I did not release this week. No? No. No. Huh. Um, Lazy. Uh, it's, it's a different version of lazy. Um, so uh, woke up this morning to a whole bunch of emails indicating sales of FM Perception, my current product, because mm. there's a big sale going on right now over at Geist Interactive, um, which is interesting. That almost ties into a whole completely independent pricing and discounts discussion um, because Todd's not a big fan of doing those. Like you have to, you have to do one for DevCon because mm. everybody just assumes that it's going to be there. But end of year stuff or Cyber Monday stuff, as a general rule of thumb, he just doesn't do them. It's like, this is what the product costs. There's this one time a year we have to do a sale. That's it. Um, he was like, yeah, let's go ahead and do one. Okay, go for it. Um, so, yeah. So uh, I'm always happy when I get those emails. So that was nice. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I did have a uh, a potential project pop up that um, there's a little app that I wrote for a customer many, many years ago, back in 2006, hmm. in the unfortunately acronymed Apple Script Studio. <laughs> um, nice. And uh, I'm not the one who named it. Um, so this app was written in 2006 and then over a span of a couple of years, we made some updates and things like that. And the last time they had me update, it was back in like 2012, I think. And at that point I had to go find or, or roll back one of my machines to 10.6 Snow Leopard, because that was the last version of Xcode that could actually open and build Apple script studio apps hmm. just to be able to get the latest and greatest APIs and, and all of that built in so that we could get another few years out of it. Well, now it's 2019. And I've got somebody popping up going, Hey, we can't use this anymore. Can, can we just get an update to that? No, 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 that's uh the the good news is that most of the heavy lifting is done by large, well-coded, well-documented Apple scripts. And you can still make a Mac OS app with Apple script, but you have to use Apple script Objective C. Which mm. the good news is I have a lot of experience with. That's what I did uh one of my old products, um, FM X ray specs in. And that's been supported since about 10.6, uh, maybe 10.7. Can I, can I say something controversial? Go ahead. Objective-C is very, very ugly. <laughs> I don't well, like it. I don't you're... like it just based on appearance. 
So when you're writing an Apple script Objective C, you're not actually writing Objective C. Hmm. Basically, what it is is it's an Apple script to Objective C bridge. And so almost all of the Objective C APIs have Apple script aliases. And so I can just call Objective C APIs from Apple script, which to a large extent is almost entirely used for interacting with the UI and interacting with higher level operating system features. Like if you want to do printing or menus and, and things like that, you need those, those bridge calls to be able to do it. So basically what it would require is the UI can basically stay the same, though it would have probably have to be rebuilt. The backend code basically stays the same because it's the, all the real heavy lifting is that code hasn't substantively changed in 20 years. So it's really just the glue between the two that would have to be rewritten. So bid that one out. We'll see if anybody comes back and says, go for it. But <laughs> it's probably the, oldest app that i've ever released that's come back after a really long time asking for an update like yeah 2006 that's it, it and isn't something that i've been in continuous development on like i've had filemaker projects where i wrote things in you know 98 or 96 that just popped up fairly regularly but this one going dark for nine operating system versions because it was just working <laughs> and now it pops up on the radar it's so old that i think the background of the ui still has pinstriping oh nice like really old so aside from that back into the parser um i was i thought i was basically done with it last time and found a thing that I missed when I was trying some, I, I was writing my first tests for things that I knew should fail. Okay. Which to a certain degree is excessive at this point, because again, all the calculations that I'm going to get are going to be ones that FileMaker already validated. But while I was here, while I was in this and while my brain was in this mode, there were a couple of things that I wanted to put in and at least sketch in some of the areas where I wanted to be able to test specifically that the parser was failing in the right place in the right way. And while I was doing that, I found a thing that works that I was not expecting. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, which is one of the fun things about this project is periodically you have to drop back over into FileMaker and go, does this really work? Does this really fail? Before I start writing a bunch of unit tests that make sure that my parser is providing the right answer. Like I don't want to spend a bunch of time fixing the parser so that it accepts something that FileMaker won't. Um... So I talked a couple of weeks ago about the not operator, mm -hmm. the logical not operator. 
and then it's kind of sibling is the negative operator, which I described as kind of an arithmetic knot. Yeah, I was momentarily not confused. <laughs> um, and then I found out within the last couple of weeks that FileMaker supports a positive operator. So I can say one plus positive two. Now, much like with negative and subtraction, the positive operator is just the plus sign. Mm -hmm. The same as the addition operator. So step one was going, okay, so that's a little weird. Step two was digging in and going, well, what the heck does this thing do? Like what, what actually happens in FileMaker when you use this operator? Because it accepts it. But as far as I can tell, it does absolutely nothing. It's a no-op. If I said, uh, like using parentheses, if I said one plus positive and then in parentheses put a negative two, the negative two doesn't turn positive. Hmm. This isn't an absolute value. It doesn't seem to change any of the numbers at all. What and if you have a, a variable that has a negative value and you use the positive operator on that will that flip it then i don't believe so hmm. i didn't do huge amounts of testing because again to a certain degree at this stage of my process it doesn't matter yeah like i don't curiosity. i don't need to do the math but i start digging into this thing wait wait wait, wait what <laughs> and so the best answer that i've come up with for why it's there at all is i think sometime somewhere in the annals of filemaker history Somebody wanted to be able to type a calculation this way. Mm -hmm. You know, to be able to say positive one plus positive two. And they decided to make the parser allow it, but not actually change its functionality. So it allows a explicitness of what you're typing, but doesn't change the mathematical function of the thing. I couldn't come up with any possible use for it, but for any of our FileMaker developer listeners, I'd love to hear if anybody can think of a way that this would do it. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's now supported in in the Antler parser for FileMaker. Um, and then added some more test cases for either... Known failures or weird cases, things like completely blank calculations. You know, the calculation string is empty. There could be a situation where the old version was blank, the new version has a value. It's not immediately obvious to the parser that these will, or to the the logic of that larger application that these can't be converted interchangeably until it does its parsing work. Then I have to be able to hand a blank over and get back an answer. <laughs> um, which required a little bit of poking and prodding. The cool part is I've got enough antler now that I can do like figuring that out, how to adjust the parser so that basically just getting an end of string all by itself is now a valid calculation string 
doing that work actually didn't take very long. So A, make the parser support it. B, put in unit tests that do it. So blank calcs, calculations that are just white space. If somebody thought they had deleted it, but they left a space behind it. I'm not even 100% sure if FileMaker supports that, but the parser isn't going to puke at this point. <laughs> um, but just really verifying that things that should fail are failing. Which almost all of my unit tests so far have been, I expect this to work, make sure that it worked. And so there's a bunch of room there to flesh out more of that. And I certainly will once I get to actually trying to validate calculations. Um, and then I had built scaffolding, gosh, a month ago for taking the calculation, parsing it, and then putting it back together as tagged XML with the interesting parts with little tags wrapped around them. And that's pretty close to being the last major piece to the parser. Um, and there's mm. some... Mm. Two, uh, I don't know about that. I've heard you say that a couple times. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. Every time I say it, I flinch. But you know, Dave, I'm almost done with the UI in my app. <laughs> yeah, almost done with the UI. Should be ready to release in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Um. So there's a a obnoxious little thing. I've talked before about how Antler basically builds a tree of elements. It mm -hmm. says, this is a calculation. And inside the calculation is like, oh, this is a number and this is an operator and this is another number and this is another operator and this is a field name. And that's kind of a tree thing. So I can say, look at the entire calculation or look at each of those elements individually. There are some spots where, particularly when looking at identifiers, so a variable like dollar sign this variable is composed of a dollar sign and an identifier. Mm -hmm. Well, there are certain situations where the identifier is all we need, like the name of a function. And there are other spots where the identifier is part of something else. So I can't just say wrap all the identifiers with an identifier tag. There are certain times when I need to wrap those identifiers and certain times, depending upon where I am in the tree structure, I have to say, I already wrapped this one step up or two steps up. Don't wrap at this point. And so giving it a little bit of knowledge there about where it is in a structure is a little funky. Hmm. A similar sort of problem pops up when we get into the let and while functions and scope. Because one of the... The first part is, I just have to say that the kinds of problems that I'm currently having to code for are problems that I would never run into in my own code. <laughs> because I would never do this. You're coding for the worst of us. <clears throat> I, 
I would never do this specifically because it's confusing to me. Mm -hmm. The fact that it would be confusing to the parser also makes a certain amount of sense. But one of them is there's nothing in FileMaker to stop you from putting a let inside a let. Mm -hmm. People do it all the time. Right. So I can't just say if you're inside a let, do this. If you're not do this because you could be outside the inner one but still inside the outer one mm-hmm. and there's also the fact that these variable names are scoped to the particular let so there's nothing to stop you from in the inner let using a variable name that you used in the outer let if you define it in the variable definition section then inside the let, it uses the inner definition, but outside the let, it uses the outer definition. To make it even worse, there's nothing to stop you in FileMaker from doing another thing that I wouldn't do, which is name one of your let variables the exact same thing as a field. Because a let variable doesn't have any kind of indicator, like the dollar sign or double dollar sign on variables and mm-hmm. things like that there's nothing to 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 logically set it apart as being of a different scope than a field name and so i had to set up a calculation where there's a field named val and then there's a let that has a variable named val and then inside that is a let with a variable named val. <laughs> and making sure that the parser could tell which references to that field or, or that name were references to let variables and which ones were references to the field name in the outer scope. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, thanks. Um. <laughs> And so what you end up with is you end up with a stack of lists of strings with the variable names. And as you go into each of these functions, you push the current functions, variable names onto the stack. And then when I reference something that looks like it might be a variable name, i.e. it's not covered by one of the other rules... I then have to look inside that stack to see if it exists anywhere in the stack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A um, little bit of fun. Yeah. I'm curious why you did a, a single stack instead of like an array of arrays, like the top array being an array of the scopes and then the mm-hmm. elements inside the scope. Um, <clears throat> have you ever worked with a stack? Yeah. Okay. In C sharp, yeah. Okay. Um, they are really nice when you're doing that. Um, this kind of hierarchical enter and exit sort of thing. That the functions that you do on a stack you can do with an array, but they just are cleaner and more semantically and syntactically uh, explicit Mm. about what they're doing. 
like if you have an array and you get out of you know you exit a scope in an array you have to delete the last element off the array Mm -hmm. in the stack it's just pop and for more fun with the pop function you get back the thing that you popped off so it's one single statement that just says give me the last thing from the stack while removing it from the stack in three characters pop that's the that's the code equivalent of i'll take that right and there's another function that it has called peak Hmm. and peak always gives you basically a pointer to the last the most recently added item in the stack but it doesn't pop it off so if you just want to know what the last item was you can peek mm-hmm. now there is a spot in the code where when i have to go running through the stack to check and see if this variable exists anywhere on there i momentarily turn it into an array and c sharp has a very nice function for just going think this is now an array mm-hmm which I would love to avoid if I can, but that's one of the difficulties of a stack is the stack goes, you don't care how many things are in here or how deep the stack goes. You really just care about the most recent one, which in this particular case isn't strictly true. But what I would have ended up having to do is make a series of functions that would give me things almost exactly like a stack while still doing an array. Yeah. And it's possible that that's a performance optimization that I could do, but now is not that time. I mean, this app is a really good opportunity for you to invent new collection types. Because <laughs> you, you haven't really been spending a lot of time doing difficult things. Like you've yeah. just been, you know, casually messing around with you know, some parser, whatever. So yeah, why not, why not make some new languages and, and collection types? Yeah. Go go three or four layers deep now. That's totally what I should do with my time. Yeah. Um, In fact, why don't you come up with a new standard to replace XML while you're at it? No. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the XML that I am, the XML tags that I am adding are very, very carefully valid XML. <laughs> I'm I'm not doing any of that. Um. So here's a fun one for you. And this is one that I'm not sure what I want to do with. So I've got this thing that parses the entire calculation. And it has to parse everything intelligently so that it can tag the appropriate elements the way I want them tagged when it does the output. Mm -hmm. So the parser always has to be the same. But at this point in the process, all I care about are things that are or may be field names or uh, custom function names. Because those are the things that you can rename between one version and the next. Um, so I have the option at this point to, to make an output class that only tags those elements. So I figured out that this is a local variable name. But a change in a local variable name is a valid change. It's not a FileMaker magic change. 
So I don't need a variable name tagged for the purposes of what I'm doing right now. So what do I do? I can do the thing right now where I say tag everything. And 90% of those tags I'm going to ignore mm -hmm. because they're not relevant to what I'm doing with it now. But it has the advantage of giving me basically one single code base for any parsing that I'm doing now and any parsing that I'm doing later in more complex things that I, that I want to mess with. Option two is optimize the current class for the current task. Only tag the things that I need to tag for right now and literally ignore everything else. Just dump it out as text. Mm -hmm. Option three is do one class, but give it a switch. So that I say verbose tagging or minimal tagging. Mm. And it'll still have largely the same object, but every single one of these things will have a little toggle whether it says add the tag or not. The cool part is actually I can even simplify that because I'm doing it in a spot or two where when I turn off the tagging, it still inserts the tag. But at that point, the tag is blank. It's an empty string. Hmm. So it adds an empty string before and after the variable name, which is very fast and is not problematic. I can't figure out what to do. Yeah, I have no idea with that one. Um, I'm kind of tempted to do the verbose tagging. It may turn out to have a performance hit, though. Maybe. <laughs> then again, if I do the switchable one, I'm still doing the same number of text edits either way. The yeah. same number of concatenations. It's just that some of those concatenations are with empty strings. Which C-sharp may have an optimization for or something like that. But the I don't think I want to do two classes. Because 90% of the code between those two classes is similar if not exactly the same i mean can't you just make a parent class without the tags and a subclass with the tags hmm let me write that down i may well be able to do that i'll, I'll send you a bill <laughs> and with all of this i've been considering making a mini test app that just does this parsing. Mm -hmm. um, something that I could even put out into the developer community with some of my partisans and just say, throw nasty calculations that are valid at this thing mm -hmm. and make sure it doesn't generate an error. And if it does, press this button to send it to me in an email. You could uh, make your app assign scores between, say, 1 and 100 and then have little public contests to see who can get the lowest and highest scores. 
Well, the lowest probably isn't hard because, well, depending upon what your scale is, like complexity. Yeah, you have to, have to kind of play with that. Because um, the lowest complexity is an empty calculation. Or I mean, the a calculation scale, that returns one. I think the, the scale is on inscrutability. <laughs> the first annual inscrutables hosted by FM Perception. There is actually a C code competition. It's basically exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, have we ever talked about the obfuscated C code contest? No. You've seen enough code and enough objective C and things like that to be able to look at this stuff and realize how horrifying it is. Um, I cannot properly express to you how extremely talented and demented <laughs> the competitors in this competition are. Nice. Um, I'll have to look it up. Oh, it's... It's literally, like, the, the trick at looking at those contest entries is you have to hang around for, like, ten minutes. If you can hang around for ten minutes, you can spend an hour looking through the thing. But those first ten minutes, you literally want to run screaming from the internet. Hmm. Like, it's just, it's obvious that people did the worst possible things imaginable to code. Now, they're actually trying to write the worst things imaginable. So, imagination is is a terrible, terrible tool. Um, rather than just, oh, I wrote this and I thought it was good code. Yeah, this isn't those entries. Um, I'm also, like, I have to write a mini test app for this anyway. Mm-hmm that can like take in an entire system as XML, find all the calculations and run the parser against all of them because I shouldn't get any syntax errors on any of them and flag if anything doesn't parse properly. Cause for all the unit tests that I write that say the parser is working properly, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it accepts every weird variant that FileMaker can come up with. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was another one I had to add support for was leading white space. Like, there's no particular reason that somebody would start a calculation with space space one plus two. Yeah. But at one point, the parser did not handle that very well. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't understand what the space is doing there. Yeah, me neither, but you got to accept it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so my mini test app will certainly have to be for me. The question is kind of whether I make a slightly more polished without going stupid crazy version that I can release to the public to get it run against more code. Um, I've got a lot of DDRs from other developers that had problems with their code or problems with FM perception and things like that. So I've got a lot of sample data myself that I can run it against. 
So I probably don't need to polish it well enough for um, for actual release, even to like even to people that can handle getting an ugly test system. Mm-hmm. So I think I'll probably just do that. Cool. So that'll be ready next week. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going um, to cut the podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> then you're going to be on the hook. 